Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey, everybody. I'm so glad to be with you today. And as always, as you know, I love my guests. I love the people who come on looking for looking to give us information. And I found a wonderful guest today. Her name is Lulu Cook. Say hi, Lulu. Hi, everyone. Great. And Lulu Cook is an expert in eating disorders, food addiction. She's a coach. She's a dietitian. And I think she really has a good handle on eating issues. And before I introduce her, let me just say that so many of the addicts that I work with, especially sex addicts, you know, they may struggle with more than one issue. And a lot of the men I work with might struggle with alcohol and drugs and then figure out the sex piece. But a lot of the women I work with tend to find that food is a big issue. And they may even bounce back and forth between a problematic relationship and eating or no relationship in eating. And so food seems to come up a lot for people who are in pain. And so let me introduce and welcome Lula Cook, who's from Australia. Oh, thanks for having me, Rob. So tell us, I mean, tell us a little bit about you, a little about what, how you got in the field, why it's important to you. And, you know, why don't we start there? Uh, so I've been in the rooms in recovery myself for 20 years. That was originally from uh, substance addiction that led me to living off of um, Rice Krispie treats and banana milk that I would steal <laughs> from neighborhood, mm. you know, Seven Elevens or convenience stores. Like that was my diet for years. That doesn't sound too healthy. No, no. It turns out it's shockingly bad for your teeth as well. Mm. Um, <laughs> so, so I came into the rooms. I, I was, you know. Uh, malnourished. And Lulu, I'm sorry, but what do you mean by in the rooms? Because everyone might not understand that. Oh, well, I, you know, I, I went through a residential rehab for, for some time. I needed like a lot of support and actually locked doors. And from there found the 12 step rooms and have been engaged in a couple of particular different programs in, in the 12 step rooms. Um, Great. Thanks for explaining that. So yeah. please continue with your story. Yeah. Well, so, you know, that saying you can never be too rich or too thin, I just have to disagree with because when I, when I put down my substances, I was too thin, just dire and shocking. So started to, to eat again, started to nourish myself better, put on a lot of weight right away, as happens for um, some of us. Hmm. We can, when we become abstinent from our 
most obvious problem, whatever, you know, really brought us to our knees, uh, we can find that lifestyle changes that come along with that are really going to change our bodies really fast. It was really freaky and uncomfortable for me. So I'm navigating all that. I ended up pregnant very shortly thereafter, not necessarily what I recommend to others nowadays, although I have a beautiful daughter because of that. Mm -hmm. Body changing, suddenly have to feed myself and feed this growing baby inside of me, little mini family. I had to learn how to cook, which you know, I, I couldn't feed all of us on stolen Rice Krispie treats. So <laughs> and macaroni and cheese. Right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. So I, you know, in that process of learning how to truly nourish my body and, and nourish this baby in a healthier way, I fell in love with it. I this idea that food is medicine and the impact of food on my mood it was so profound. I ended up going back to university then and getting my my credential as a dietitian. And really moving into that field, I didn't focus on uh, recovery and mental health for some time. I was in corporate wellness. I did some um, kind of exciting, fun stuff, continuing my own healing journey, worked in, worked in eating disorder um, rehabilitation centers, uh, and did a lot of volunteer work in, in addiction recovery communities. But then after moving to Australia and, and launching into my own private practice here, I had left my employer and, and started private practice here. And just started, I guess, talking about the things that I care about and the, the things that I see being related and important, answering the questions that were coming to me from different different places. And that brought me squarely to, to food addiction and the challenges and almost the invisibility of, of people who are really struggling around having a, a healthy relationship with how they eat, how they nourish themselves. I understand that. So, Lula, this brings up a really good question for me, which is, and I really don't necessarily know the answers. One is, what's the difference between like food addiction and an eating disorder? And the other part is, how would I know if I had one of these? I mean, I know I really like a lot of late night desserts. And since COVID, I've gained 10 pounds. Um, but I don't know that that's necessarily an eating disorder or a food addiction. So what is the difference between the two? And how would I know if I had it? So the difference between the two is probably technical as much as anything. An eating disorder would mean that you have specific behaviors around how you eat that meet diagnostic criteria. We could tick down that box, count how many of those criteria you have. And that would be things around how much or how little you eat, how frequently, as well as what your attitude or, or mind state is about it. How do you feel about your food choices? So that would be the official eating disorder aspect of it. Food addiction is not um, a diagnosable mental illness at this time. But what I can tell you is that people suffer around how they're consuming food absolutely identically to how they suffer around how they're consuming drugs, drugs of addiction, sex addiction. You can take, I, I, I've done this, I've taken um, written excerpts that people have shared with me describing how they relate with, with food. You can black out everywhere it says food and put in sex or gambling or alcohol and it, it just maps perfectly. It is the same experience and what the indicator is, some of us are having too many cookies late at night. We feel perfectly fine with that. Our health is not particularly being impacted. Our, our functioning is not being impacted. Our mental state is not being impacted. We feel fine about it. We had a few cookies last night. Meh. 
I'll walk an extra block today. You're not like me. I will obsess all day long about those two cookies, but I don't think I have an eating disorder. I just want to be thin. You know, like I think everybody wants to be thin. I don't know what that's about. But wait, I have a question. I have lots of questions. One of them is I think food is seen, the problems with food is often seen as a domain of women. And a lot of the men that I run into who have eating disorders are often gay. I do see some straight men or some heterosexual men with eating disorders, but not nearly as many. And, you know, I could write a book about that. It has something to do with testosterone or whatever. But do you think eating disorders are, are mostly a woman's issue? Yes. And when we talk about eating disorders broadly, it's a little too broad because there's the restrictive type eating disorders. That's your you know, anorexia where I'm eating, I'm, I'm not eating. And that often comes hand in hand with that because I want to be thin. And then there's the, there's the excess type eating disorders, binge eating disorder, bulimia nervosa. That's where there's going to be that binging behavior. That person would be more likely to, to be overweight rather than underweight. And certainly with men, we see that there's a little bit of a different pattern there. Binge eating disorder overall is the most common eating disorder there is. Affects anywhere from 2 to 5% of the population. It's also the least identified and least treated. So least diagnosed and least treated eating disorder. Also the newest official eating disorder that there is. Anyway, men are neck and neck with women for how often they might experience binge eating or, or binge eating disorder. So anywhere from 2 to 4% of men, probably. And that's more, more so than with the restrictive eating disorders, anorexia specifically, that's got more, more women might fall into that camp than men. And it might be more likely to be gay men. Yeah. I heard you say binge eating and men. And I thought, I sort of was thinking, well, it's a lot more culturally acceptable for a man to be 25 pounds or 30 pounds overweight. Nobody would really probably bat much of an eye, but if a woman's 30 pounds overweight, it's kind of a different experience for her and the culture. Do I have that right? I would say yes. That would be my experience. I, you know, always holding out that any individual person's experience might be different than that, but of course. yeah, absolutely. We're speaking in, and just for everyone else, we're speaking in generalities because, and, and by the way, Lulu and I talked about this earlier, I, I can't call any one person anything. I can't necessarily understand someone until I've really spent time with them. And so while we do make sort of sweeping, as you said, diagnostic categories and criteria, because in order to work in this field, we have to have a common language. On the other hand, each individual and their personal problems when they stand in front of us is really different. And that is important for us to think about, even though folks were talking in general terms. I like what you said about that too, because I think that there is a value in familiarity with the official language. When we look at the fact that this kind of binge eating behavior is probably the most common way people might have an abnormal relationship with food, I guess you could call it. Most common, least diagnosed and treated. Some of that is because of fat stigma and shaming. Some of it's because of not really wanting to bring up the weight issue in the doctor's office. The, the patient might not want to bring it up. The doctor doesn't want to bring it up. And so that's incredibly disempowering for that person to feel like they have choice, to feel like they could regain a sense of control or comfort around their eating behaviors. And I, so I think it's important for us to be familiar with and, and comfortable with and confident with the official kind of medical diagnostic language so that we can best advocate you know, for ourselves or for our clients. And they might still 
really relate to it as, hey, this feels like an addiction to me. I, this is food addiction. I'm out of control here. You know, when I think about the word addiction, uh, I think about things like a behavior that's obsessed about that seems to drive the person and then there seem to be consequences related to it, whatever those might be. And then despite those consequences, that person continues to focus and obsess on this, despite the problems it might cause in their lives. I think that's sort of how we look at addiction. How does food food into that? I mean, what is out of control? What is obsession? What are negative consequences? How does that work in food? Uh, well, I could just say ditto. Like everything you just said, describing that sense of being out of control mm-hmm. can be a person's experience with food. I had a client say to me the other day that the only thing she does all day long in her head is fluctuate between fear and thinking about food, whether it's what she is going to eat, what she's not going to eat, what she shouldn't have eaten, um, how she's going to get, what she's already planning to binge on later. She's either in fear or thinking about food. That's it. She said, that's all that's going on in my life. So that level of narrowing down of the the possibilities that someone feels around what they can do with themselves, how they could live, what what they might like to, to do this afternoon, entirely narrowed by the the limits of addiction. And you mentioned something earlier about and I don't know, you know, in, in my world, we'd call it, call it body dysmorphia, a word I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, or phrase rather. And to my understanding, that means someone who, despite what the reality is, they, they have a fixed and unchanging view of their weight. So how, or who, how they look. So no matter how thin I was, I might look in the mirror and say, God, I got to lose 10 pounds when everyone else would say, you're too thin. It, does that show up in food addiction? I mean, I understand clinical body dysmorphia is a is a complete issue unto itself and has its own criteria and is a much more a different kind of mental health disorder. But it does seem that people who have eating disorders kind of are, have some skewed views of how other people see them, how they see themselves in the mirror, even though it may not be all the way to, you know, a complete delusional issue. Is that true? Do people have kind of distorted views of themselves? Well, yes, I would say in in my experience, though, I see that that real distortion would be more likely to be in the realms of the restrictive disorders like anorexia. And to be clear, people can move back and forth between these different categories and be um, fully qualified for the criteria for um, anorexia for some time, and then something shifts and changes, and maybe then they become more of a binge eater. So they, there is mobility there, but uh, in general, that that real dysmorphia would be more associated with the restrictive periods, whereas someone who's caught more in that binging cycle might probably be more likely to be carrying an, an unhealthy amount of extra weight or be in a body that they're that's bigger than what they'd prefer. And they know it and they might be a little bit clear-eyed about that. Whereas body dysmorphia, it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't match with what others are perceiving. I, I would observe that with the binging behaviors, probably it does match a little bit more with the reality in that objective sense. So this woman or man, they see themselves as fat. They are, or fat's not the right word. I'm sorry. I'm sure that's a bad word. They see themselves as as overweight and they are very unhappy about it. And they're dealing with a reality that they have created. Could be, could be. I mean, the binging behaviors, it's 
a higher proportion of people who are in bigger bodies will have binging behaviors than smaller people. A higher percentage of people with binging disorders will be in bigger bodies, but it's not necessarily the case. You could be perfectly, quote, normal weight and still have those binging behaviors, you know, absolutely. But I think one of the things I would differentiate is that with more of the binging behaviors, the, the distress that I hear about and that people share with me, it's less about the size and the shape of the body. It's more about what it's like eating and how out of control they feel. And wow. yeah. And let me ask, I don't mean to pry, but what kind of eating patterns are you, I mean, you're talking about, I know for me, sometimes a pint of Haagen-Dazs can make the end of my day, even though I should probably only eat half. What kinds of, what are you really talking about? How much weight gain? What kinds of eating that are, I wouldn't say normal or abnormal, I'd probably say healthy or unhealthy. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a better that's a better word. But bin, binging would be marked by consuming objectively enormous amount of food. I mean, it can be thousands and thousands and thousands of calories. It's consuming it very quickly, so that might be within the span of just an hour or two. Oftentimes alone, this is around some of the the shame and stigma and and hiding of these behaviors. So just eating an enormous amount of food fast alone to a point of feeling physically uncomfortable and with that sense of distress, shame, guilt, loss of control. That said, some people might experience some of that. They might experience that shame and distress with a much smaller amount of food. You know, one person's half a cup of ice cream might feel like a binge to them. And they might, in fact, have a physiological feeling of uncomfortably full. Oh, I ate way too much. That's bringing us to that mind body connection and how, how those physiological signals of eating, you know, half a cup of ice cream, that's not actually a large amount of substance to go into the body, but, but it can flare up physiologically and activate that sense of distress. Oftentimes that that's kind of pointing to the, the trauma patterning there. And that's was my next question, of course, which is what produces this level of distress around eating and this compulsive behavior? I, I know a lot about where it comes from with sexual disorders, and that's what we do at Seeking Integrity. But I'm wondering, you know, where does it come from in the people you treat? What do you think is going on with them that leaves them with this problem? I think that they're protecting themselves. They might have learned... Um, these ways of protecting themselves and trying to care for themselves emotionally early, early on. So wait, wait, are you talking about trauma? Yes, yes. Talking about trauma at, you know, many different levels. But yeah, so for some people, it might even, it's, it's an outgrowth from that experience as a kid of, of having your caregiver say, oh, you know, you're sad here. Let's get you, oh, sorry to pick on ice cream again. You're feeling sad today. Let's get you an ice cream. Or I don't have time for you today, but here's something to eat. Yeah. So it doesn't, it wouldn't necessarily have to be a dramatic kind of trauma. It could just be a, a little moment of misattunement where now instead of getting my, my care needs met with that loving other, I'm trying to take care of my emotional state with food, with eating. And, you know, sure enough, it, it works. What do you mean it works? Well, the things that we tend to reach for, um, that would be high fat, high sugar foods. Those are overwhelmingly connected with a higher risk of food addiction and, and binge eating is those types of high fat, high sugar, hyper processed foods. Like we can see that in the research, but also 
those high fat, high sugar foods release chemical cascades in our brains that are not dissimilar from what gets released with consumption of alcohol or cocaine, um, most specifically. So it's pinging off all of the same neural circuits as these drugs that we associate with, you know, euphoria or addiction, we can be getting ourselves that hit through food as well. And of course, if you're five years old and your caregiver has, you know, handed you some cookies to quiet you down when you're sad, it's, you know, nobody's blaming that five-year-old for having poor, you know, bad moral choices and lack of self-will. Of course, they're going to go for those cookies and and they are physiologically going to feel this effect. It works. And then at the farther end of that, as perhaps an adult who is engaging in, in binge eating behaviors, it works then too, um, perhaps up to several hours of relief after a binge, relief from uncomfortable emotional states. And oftentimes that might just look like feeling numb. Right. Numbing. That's what I was thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Feeling numb for several hours after the binge. I eat and eat and eat. I stuff those uncomfortable emotions and those uncomfortable emotions can be positive just as well as negative. It might be just as scary and threatening for some of us to feel seen or cared for or happy. But what you're saying is I eat to not feel in a sense. And also I'm redirecting. Once I hate myself for what I'm eating or I'm all focused on that, then the other issues, they're not as, I'm not focused on those, those painful issues, the, the disagreement, the abandonment, because now I'm just focused on how awful I am because of all that I've eaten. So it also shifts the focus off of dealing with the real world and onto shame and self-hatred and basically me. Yeah. And I, you know, we know that tape well, right? So there's a lot of comfort and familiarity there. I know how to do that. Do you think that most people who are either binge eaters or go back and forth or, or more anorexic, do you see a lot of these folks as being in relationships or is there more, uh, uh, are they tend to be more single? Well, fun fact in regards, uh, at least specifically in the arena of binge eating disorder, there is research saying that it is um, equal opportunity in regards to marital status. So married, unmarried, equally likely for any given individual to be experiencing binge eating disorder. Whether that trickles out <laughs> to other official diagnoses, I'm, I'm not familiar with the research there. But overall, I would say with the people I work with, no, not a strong history of certainly healthy and, and satisfying intimacy and relationships. But then again, these are often people who are struggling. It's hard to parse apart where it's the, the eating and food addictions versus also that co coexistence or that overlap with substance abuse or other behavioral addictions. Or um, sex. That, yeah, exactly. Well, behavioral addictions, I, I was thinking of that as well, that that could... Um, play into it as well. Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this sex, love and addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, seeking integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com. That's seekingintegrity.com or call us at 747-234-4325. Well, and going back to something you said earlier, I just want to bring it into my world. I have many clients who binge and purge. They will become excessively sexual, out of control sexually, you know, and then something triggers them like a loss or a crisis, and then they stop having sex. 
and they think, oh, I've got this thing. In fact, I'll just tell you, I've, I've been to many a 12-step program for sexual issues. And I walk up to someone, I say, you know, how much time you have? Oh, I have 12 years. And I say, well, what's your 12 years been like? And oh, I haven't had sex in 12 years. And I'm thinking, I would rather make mistakes than be in that set of circumstances. <laughs> I'm just wondering if that comes, you know, with drugs and alcohol, and you've been in both worlds, there is a perfectionism. You know, there's a, I'm sober 12 years, I'm sober 15 years. And the person who's sober 20 years is opposed to the person who's over 15 has more status, more they're regarded more highly, all of that. But I don't think that either food or sex are, we're going to struggle. We're not going to do it right. It's a natural occurring function. We might be challenged. And I wonder how you deal with that as opposed to drugs and alcohol, which are kind of clean, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great question. And with that spirit of looking forward to how, how do we address this? How do we navigate it? those challenges moving forward in our lives. Um, there's no magic wand on them. And I see that, you know, different people respond better and are more inclined toward different approaches. Some people will take a very strict abstinence only approach to their trigger foods and feel like being engaged in, in a program that asks for a meal plan with a cohort with other people of the same problem. Sure, a cohort, but also, you know, some of the some of the 12-step programs that are around food will have some guidelines around following very specific meal plans, weighing and measuring, having accountability and checking in to um, a sponsor or a group or a therapist, something about exactly. And some people might need that. Some people might need that and feel very safe that way and find that wow, once I just turn that over, uh, turn over my need to control my food and just follow this suggest you know follow the suggestions. I am more free. <laughs> I just quit obsessing as much. So it works really well for some people. Other people are just going to go bonkers with that level of um, you know nailing down and controlling what they're eating. What I see works well for um, you know another sizable portion of people is that. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Sizable portions are things you eat. I just want to say I didn't. Uh, so I just want to okay. call you out on that reference. Fair enough. Fair enough. Could be confusing in this context. Um, a big group of people uh, would would fall into a different a, a, a space where rather than that that strict eating plan and abstinence over time, rather than just the really you know wide open intuitive eating. That's another very legitimate approach. I'm just going to learn to listen to my body's signals. There's an aspect of mindfulness there. It can work really well for some people. And what I see a lot of people able to do is maybe they start when they're right coming off the rocks of a, a really tough period and how they're relating to the food. It might be a time that kind of more structure, more stability, just I eat at this time and this time and this time period, whether I feel like it or not. That structure can be so supportive at first, but then the, the plan might be, and meanwhile, let me be building up some skills, building up some emotional capacity, building up some understanding of what really would be nourishing for, for my body and my brain to feel more balanced and moving toward a more intuitive eating style over time where maybe they could let go of some of that structure. You know, you mentioned food plans and things like, you know, deciding what you can eat and deciding what you can eat in different times of day. But what you didn't mention I'm curious about are things like, if I had this issue, I don't go to buffets. I don't take a second helping. I don't go to, you know, I don't have dessert. I don't in, eat in between meals. I don't take a second helping. So I wonder if there are any of those kind of cues that also fall into this. Well, so those are food rules that may 
you know, the ones that you just suggested sound like they could be very helpful rules of thumb for many of us to follow from a health standpoint. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I've been to some of those buffet restaurants and I got to tell you, I don't see many slim people in the all you can eat buffets, but that's just me. No, I very rarely need to do a second round at that buffet table. I don't need to. I might want to. I might do it. But just from a health standpoint, I don't need to. So that might be a very practical and, and wise rule of thumb to have. However, again, it comes down to that. How am I relating to that rule? If I am using it to beat myself up and hate myself for the time I did go back to for that second or third, you know, walk by the dessert buffet. Well, then it might be a good time to think about this. These rules of thumb are useful. They're good. Let me place them all in a huge field of self-compassion because this stuff is not easy. We don't get to stop eating if we want to keep living. We just need to learn how to nourish ourselves in ways that will feel more healthy and balanced. And that takes a lot of compassion for how hard that, that shift will be for some of us. I do want to ask you just, um, I know we have to stop soon, but you know, when people, in my experience, when people come into drug and alcohol treatment, or in my case, sexual disorder treatment, as I often say, nobody comes in because they want to be a better person. <laughs> Everyone I've ever met comes in because they're in a crisis, they want the crisis to end or not happen again, and, and the result of that crisis is they can grow from it, and it can be motivation for change. But what is a crisis that someone who binge eats, I know, understand anorexia is you know, such a huge health issue, but if I binge eat and I'm just kind of heavy but not profoundly obese, what would be the consequence that would drive me into wanting to get help, or is it something different? Well, people can go broke with the amount of money they're spending on food. People can find their work, their capacity to show up for work is impaired. They can literally be hungover from last night's binge and unable to get up and function the next day to get to work. And people experience truly dire relationship breakdowns around that kind of food obsession. I know I said I would come to your uh, wedding anniversary and that was a big deal to you and I really wanted to be there. I couldn't make it because I was binging that night or just so racked by shame and I, I didn't make it. Or of course, at an even more intimate level, right? I don't want you to touch me. I hate myself. I feel gross. And actually, rather than be anywhere near that, that conversation or that possibility that we might be intimate, I'm actually going to be, you know, out in the garage, in the car, binge eating. I'm not going to be anywhere near it. So there are very real direct consequences of being caught there that people just like any addiction, what is our bottom? It, it's going to be different for each of us, but we might have that moment of just being like, I cannot live like this anymore. I want my life to be bigger than this. So before we get to resources and how people can reach you, and but I have this sort of question that's sort of on my mind, just as a regular person, and, and I don't know if you can help, but what is the difference between I have a problem with food or I don't and wait? Because I know people who they're just big bone, they're heavy, you know, they, they're not, it's not a problem for them. They're happy with their lives. They could lose 20, 20, 30 pounds, but they don't really want to. It isn't affecting their health, health so profoundly. So is weight a motivator for an eating disorder? Is weight a reason that people come in? Is Are people who are comfortable with their weight, even though it might be a lot more than you or I might be comfortable with, is that mean that they're in denial? How do weight and food kind of fit together? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, and I'll work 
well, I don't know if it's backwards. I'll work all around <laughs> how you how you threw toss those out. Um, I will say, you know, OA Overeaters Anonymous has a great little um, catchphrase that that people might use, which is to say, "I came for the vanity, I stayed for the sanity." Ooh, I love that. Can you say it again? I came for the vanity and I stayed for the sanity. I love that. That's right. And I 100% see that with the people I work with as well. Many, many times the front line of what they're going to say to me, hey, Ms. Dietitian, I'd like to work with you. I want to lose a little weight. That's what I'm here for. Want to look a little better. Want to lose a little weight. Great. Came for the vanity. As we start unpacking it, we might find that, you know, for some people it is simple. They're going to make some little lifestyle choices go eat more vegetables, eat a few less cookies. That's all going to normalize. It's going to be easy for them. That does happen. Oh, I, um. I get it. I, honestly, if I stop eating sweets, I lose 10 pounds. That's what happens. I just do. And I'm one of those people who never gets really heavy, so everyone hates me. I get it. Yeah. Other people are going to find that they cannot make those, quote, easy lifestyle changes. It's running up against their entire lifetime of conditioning, for instance, that those cookies mean emotional safety. So if I give that up, what do I have? It runs a lot deeper for them. And the work will be very, very different and more intensive for them. And they're going to find, well, I came for the, the vanity, but actually I have some of these deep running dynamics that are not working well in my life anymore that I need to address if I want to be free. So that's the sanity. So it's not just about food. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely not. Food touches everything. It touches it touches our relationships. It touches our faith systems. It touches politics. It touches our environment, right? Food relates with everything, certainly our physical health. So circling back around to another aspect of your question around weight and health, I want to be on the record and really clear about this, that it is possible to be healthy, mentally and physically and emotionally healthy at a much wider range of weights than you might guess by looking at the, the headlines in line at the checkout counter. Well, forget the headlines. If I look at a BMI, you know, one of those like little charts, I'm obese and I know that I'm not obese because I I know what size pants I wear. So I, I, how do you, I, I don't mean to push that because I know you have to go, but like that seems a challenge already that the medical community has kind of a tight rope on what is, and it doesn't even say large bone, small bone. I mean, it's just sort of here you are. Look, anything that when you look at the research, it's, it's definitely a, a J-shaped or a U-shaped curve. Either of the two extremes, very, very low weight, very, very high weight, either of those two extremes are unlikely to be a healthy weight for any of us. However, between the real extremes, there is a wide range of weights that any one of us, no matter how big our bones are, no matter how physically active we are, there's a wide range of weights in which we can be happy, healthy, high energy, in which we can thrive. And I think most of us know that. And we might know, hey, I'm eating really healthy and, and really well, and I'm in a bigger body than some people are. And I'm okay with that. I feel good. I'm taking good care of myself. Sometimes that takes time. Like you have to be a little bit older to come to that conclusion. Uh, wisdom and age. Is there biology related to this? Because I know that there are families where everybody's obese, you know, and, and I don't know, and they may have lots of trauma, sexual trauma, abuse, whatever, but it does seem that there might be, I mean, just like with alcoholism, you know, if you ask me to get drunk, I, I, I hate to tell you this, I can't because my biology, 
I get to the experience of misery when I drink. I metabolize alcohol very quickly. And so I have a glass of wine and I've got a headache and I'm tired and I'm ready to go home. But someone who metabolizes alcohol slowly, they can drink me under the table and still feel great until four in the morning. So I know there's a biological predisposition for things like alcohol. Is that true for food? Yeah, absolutely. Anorexia nervosa is well studied for the heritability. Like, well, so alcohol use disorder, it's some anywhere between 50 to about 65% heritability on, on that vulnerability. I don't, I can't, I'm not remembering the number for anorexia, but I know binge eating disorder, it's about a 57% heritability on risk for a binge eating disorder. And of course, that inherited potential comes down both through the biological physiological level, but it also is perhaps reinforced by the environment, the triggers, the habits that this particular family is in. But when we look at the kinds of twin studies, or we look at the research where we take somebody out of that environment and plop them in an entirely different, completely healthy, slender, whatever, you know, plop them into that family, because of that heritability, they would still be at higher risk of both some of these ways of, of disordered eating, but also just the weight. There's a vulnerability, but it doesn't have to happen in the right circumstance or be fully played out in the right circumstance. That's right. We have so much choice. Lulu, I, I, will you come back? Because I just, you know, we could talk forever and I really want Absolutely. to. Yeah, no, um, let's do it. Let's plan, let's plan another forever talk. <laughs> so meanwhile, if people want resources around <laughs> eating disorders, food addiction, and then certainly how do they contact you? Can you give us some of those? Yes. So uh, I'll give you my, my email first because I really invite people to reach out and let me know what's going on for you personally. And I do respond to every one of them. So that's lulu, L-U-L-U, at gut feelingcoaching.com. Oh, what a great name. Thank you. And what about more general resources if they want to understand, like find books or whatever that? Yeah. Well, I'm going to point you actually also to my, I have a lot of that on both my website and my Facebook page. Those are both gut feeling nutrition therapy. So that's Facebook. I post a lot of videos on, um, Mm. on related content, uh, and then also my website, you can get the, get my newsletter. You can get a handout on simple steps to stop, like simple food and lifestyle steps to cut craving right in the moment. Both of those are gut feeling nutrition therapy. More broadly, where would I point people? I would say that giving a try to some of the 12-step oriented food programs, and there are several of them out there, Overeaters Anonymous is probably the the most widespread anorexics and bulimias, bulimics anonymous. Um, some people really appreciate that because it takes a less restrictive um, approach toward food and eating plans. And th- there's several others as well. So those are great resources. And of course, right now, because of the global situation, there's more access than ever to finding those online. And just quickly, if you want, if someone wanted to actually work with you since you're in another country, can they do that online? Would you be available to them? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I see people, I see people in the States and uh, Europe and of course here in Australia and New Zealand. And that's just through the wonders of getting to sit and sit down together, have a chat, look each other in the eye through our computer screen. So zoom away. That's right. (laughs) So Lulu Cook, I am so grateful that you joined us today and I know we'll do a lot more talking and I hope people are able to find you. Um, Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for geeking out about some of my favorite topics today. Um, So many points of connection and so many points of healing. So thank you. You're going to help a lot of people with this. So thank you again. 
Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our Treatment Center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.